Hey, church fam, Brad here. Before we jump into this week's sermon, we're going to try to do something a little different to take advantage of all of this being pre-recorded from now on. In a minute, you'll hear me read this week's passage followed by three questions. After each question, I encourage you to take a second, hit pause, and spend a few moments to reflect on that question before going on to the next one. Take it seriously. And then after the third and final one, it will just roll into this week's sermon, after which I'd encourage you to spend a few more minutes reflecting on how your answers may or may not have changed as a result. And just so you know, it's okay if this feels awkward. You may not even like your answers, and it probably won't come naturally, especially at first. But it will over time with just a little bit of repetition. Without further ado, here is our passage for this morning. From Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, the parable of the sower. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Starting in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God for those outside everything is in parables. So that, and quoting from the Old Testament, they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And the, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are, were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. So here are your questions. And again, I encourage you to pause after each one to reflect on them. Number one, in light of this parable, who is God and how do I relate to him? Number two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Number three, how is God calling you to love him, his church, and your neighbor more in light of this parable? The parables of Jesus are stories. 
illustrations of essential truths about who God is, who we are, and by extension, our life in the world. They use narrative to paint a picture that focuses our attention on one or very few facets of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In short, they are stories for life, both in that they are life-giving and for life-living, both restoring and redeeming life, as well as guiding and shaping how Christians are called to live and love in this world. Jesus tells his first parable, the parable of the sower, to introduce why and how he uses parables to teach the crowds that had begun to follow him. So it is also where we need to start in order to understand how to apply them as we follow Jesus ourselves. From here on out, I'm going to assume you've read Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. So if you did not do that as the introduction of this video recommended, you'll want to hit pause and read that now because we're going to keep doing this from here on out. Okay, let's jump in. For those of you who have grown up in church, you've probably heard this particular parable explained as being about salvation, in that each soil represents a different response to the gospel over the course of one's life and whether salvation turns out to be ultimately genuine. It is often framed as a cautionary tale, primarily about keeping the faith and making sure we plant our roots in deep, fertile soil in order to bear fruit. Takeaways include praying against spiritual forces of evil, not planting yourself in the rocky or shallow soil of half-hearted commitment, and avoiding the thorny weeds of the cultural influences that choke out your faith. Thus, the more zeal or heartfelt sincerity you can muster up, the more confidence you can have that you are like the seed that fell on fertile soil. Now, spoiler alert, that isn't primarily or even secondarily Jesus' intent in telling this par parable. Some of that is specifically true here, and some is generally true elsewhere in Scripture, but that is not really part of this passage. And the bulk of it is the result of mistakenly reading this parable initially through our eyes instead of how Jesus' original audience would have understood it. The biggest problem with the interpretation I just explained is that it prevents us from seeing ourselves in this parable as fully and as deeply as Jesus intends. And what I mean by that is this, Jesus does not intend for us to see ourselves as just one of the four types of soil. He actually wants us to see ourselves in every and all four types of soil. You see, this parable is not primarily about our salvation in an ultimate sense. It is primarily about our spiritual growth on a continual basis, how we walk the lifelong journey of faith. Jesus is not trying to explain what happens differently in the Christian versus non-Christian heart or to explain why some call themselves Christians seem to fall away. Those can be implications of this parable, but much like my dog, Scout, looks at my finger instead of where I'm pointing and trying to get her to look, it totally misses what Jesus is trying to focus on. So let's, let's jump in and let's focus and see where the heart of the parable of the sower is and therefore also the heart of all of the teachings of Jesus come from and stem from. First, there are three characters or elements in this parable. The first of which is the seed, which Jesus says in verse 14 is, just the word. This is referring to God's word, which at the time would have been what we refer to as the Old Testament, as well as Jesus's own teaching. Now, <laughs> don't let familiarity in hindsight cause you to miss the astounding implication of what Jesus says here. 
To his very Jewish disciples, Jesus' teaching would have been considered midrash or authoritative, me, authoritative yet downstream teaching on principles found in the Old Testament. But by equating his teaching with scripture, he's actually claiming to have at least the authority of Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In other words, he is claiming to speak for God. Now, the punishment for false prophets whose teaching did not line up with the rest of scripture or whose predictions did not come to pass was to be stoned to death. Jesus and his disciples knew this. So if I were Jesus, and I'm not in case you were wondering, I would want to make sure I was crystal clear in what I was and was not teaching. That's not exactly a line you want to flirt with. But as you read, Jesus explicitly told his disciples in verses 11 through 12 that part of his motivation for teaching in parables is to intentionally cloud their meaning. That, my friends, is incredibly and objectively dangerous. But it is still less dangerous than just coming out and saying it at the front end and why that is the case will be made very clear by digging into, and yes, pun intended, the second character or element of this parable the four types of soil. Now, each of the four types of soil represent different, four different dispositions of heart, four different postures toward receiving the seed of Jesus's teaching, including and especially his parables, and therefore also God's word in general. The soil that fell along the path is taken up and eaten by birds, which he tells his disciples represents Satan and the very real spiritual forces at work in the world seeking to stop or slow God's restoration of all things. In our modern age, that may sound like fairy tale, fantasy, or science fiction, but that's primarily because we take it as a matter of blind faith that there is not a spiritual reality outside of or in addition to the observable world. Like someone looking for keys only under a streetlight because that's where they can see them, we too quickly dismiss Jesus pointing at a very real and neglected dimension that legitimately interferes with our ability to hear him truly. I could say a lot more about this and I'm happy to dig in more during our Zoom breakout on Sunday morning, but this is, this is just one minor point of the parable and I want us to stay focused on where Je Jesus is primarily directing our gaze. The problem Jesus is pointing to is actually not the birds but a hard-heartedness represented by soil along the path. When we have hard hearts toward God's word and the truth, it asserts grace just bounces off to the degree that we dare not get our hopes up like I talked about on Christmas Eve or to the degree that sincere wrestling with doubt becomes a posture of cynicism over time is the degree to which God's grace does not have opportunity to even take root. This became a prescient description of how the Pharisees and Roman authorities would receive or rather not receive Jesus and his teaching. But we have this in the New Testament because of the prevalence of hard-heartedness and it's being both timeless and universal. Now, the second type of soil, the shallow or rocky soil, is at least an improvement. <laughs> if hard soil represented hard hearts, then shallow soil represents, you guessed it, shallow hearts. This internal posture or disposition is one that is at least initially receives grace with excitement and enthusiasm, but still has a degree of hardness, hence the rocky part of the soil, preventing it from sinking its roots more deeply. Then when hardship or persecution comes, represented by the scorching sun, it can't take the heat and withers. 
Peter is the very personification of the soil. At one point in the gospels, Peter was so on fire for Jesus that he offered to call down heavenly fire for Jesus upon the heads of those who rejected him. Thankfully, Jesus took a hard pass. But as soon as he was arrested later on, as soon as Peter felt a little bit of the heat of persecution, that zeal evaporates. Three times during Jesus's trial, someone asked Peter if he was one of Jesus's followers and three times he denied even knowing him. Now, it's easy to look at Peter's example and self-righteously tisk tisk at how much he didn't get it or how slow he was to learn, but we do the same thing. We are just as slow to learn and just as insistent that Jesus fit in the box we've put him in. We just have very different boxes. Let me say it this way. When we are only receptive to God where he affirms us, or our existing views, we follow Peter's example. And we preclude the deeper anchoring needed to weather the scorching heat of challenging circumstances, social pressures, discrimination, or even, God forbid, full-on persecution. Every condition or exception with which we modify our openness to truth is another rock-preventing grace from rooting more deeply in the soil of our hearts. Let me say that again because this is too important to rush past. Every condition or exception with which we modify our openness to truth is another rock preventing grace from rooting more deeply in the soil of our hearts. You've heard me say often that we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in order to belong. That aspect of our vision is biblical, healthy, and has given the table a remarkable diversity of social, cultural, and spiritual viewpoints that is all too rare. It is also one of my favorite aspects of our church family. (sighs) And I know you're just waiting for me to say, but, so here it is. But there's also a purpose to that, which is highly relevant here. The same gratuitous grace that makes that a biblical vision carries with it an insistent invitation to submit all of our viewpoints to God's perspective and allow all of our beliefs to be shaped and formed more fully by his word. I don't care care whether we are talking about theological topics or as is far more likely for this church, cultural flashpoints like gender, sexuality, race, or politics. And no matter what side you currently find yourself on, to the degree that we are unwilling to allow scripture to fully inform our beliefs, whether by dismissing or distorting its claims, is the degree to which the soil of our hearts are littered with rocks. And therefore, the degree degree to which you will also struggle to feel like you belong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. (laughs) This does not mean we don't ask questions or we uncritically accept truths that make us uncomfortable. To the contrary, we are called to bring the discomfort scripture provokes in us more deeply to scripture in order to make sure our discomfort is not due to misinterpretation. And once we've ruled that out, to allow scripture to more fully interrogate our hearts with the light of its truth. If you know nothing from your time at the table, you know that you can trust that God's love is high enough to handle our questions of why, and that his word is deep enough to give us some kind of genuine answer to them, even if we don't necessarily like it at first. Okay, again, if you want to dig more into that, 
jump into the sermon discussion, break out over Zoom on Sunday morning. But for now, let's talk about the third type of soil, the soil riddled with thorny weeds. Most immediately, Jesus is using this type of soil to foreshadow the vast majority of the crowd that will end up following him throughout his teaching ministry, who will just fall away and wither as soon as he is arrested and unable to meet their expectations. He knows that their initial motivations for following him were far from malicious. The gospels painstakingly record Jesus pointing out on multiple occasions that many followed him because they want good things, like knowing where their next meal is coming from or the political freedom to worship Yahweh as he calls them to. Let me say it again. Those are good things. Jesus says in verse 19 that it is precisely the valid cares of this world that can crowd out our ability to fully hear truth and deeply receive grace. This is part of why, while objectively worthwhile on its own merit, God calls his church to care for the socially and economically poor, for orphans and widows, as well as immigrants and refugees, so that their hearts are not so cluttered by the cares of this world that they are unable to give sufficient attention to the love of Christ. It's for this reason that I am, frankly, increasingly convinced that social media may be doing us far more harm than good. As a weed cluttering our heart with legit good things to care about, but for which we have little agency or ability to change, it crowds out our capacity to give enough fully focused care and attention to ultimate things. But Jesus also intended this soil to represent another group of people. One we can probably more easily see where things go wrong the Sadducees, where the Pharisees were so zealous for fidelity to scripture that they were blind to the Messiah it promised, staring them in the face. The Sadducees were, were seduced by the comfort, privilege, and influence of being the Roman Empire's preferred political party to the degree that they became theologically compromised and no longer believed core Old Testament doctrines like the resurrection. Where still, the Sadducees persecuted anything or anyone that threatened their political position, often at the expense of either fidelity to scripture or the good of God's people. The place for God's word in their hearts had become so overgrown by thorns that capital T truth was buried under competing agendas. I debated on whether to bring this up, but the more I studied this passage, the more clear the parallel became and the more like negligence it felt not to bring it up. So let me pull the bandaid off quickly. It is this kind of soil that results with the Christian nationalism we saw on literal display at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. this week. My heart broke seeing signs of Jesus saves alongside Confederate flags, Trump campaign banners, and God help us, an actual gallows complete with a hangman's noose hung several feet off the ground. When a Messiah crowned in thorns and praying his father's forgiveness for those crucifying him becomes compatible with a political movement defined by selfishness and advocating violence against those who merely hold different political convictions, you are no longer following Jesus. You're following a God remade in your own cultural or political image. You are not submitting your, your cultural or political identity to the God in whose image you were made, period. Now, <laughs> whether you amen or object to what I just said, 
I need you to hit the pause button in your heart. Take a deep breath. No, really, take a deep breath. If what you're feeling right now in this moment is anything other than a heart-rending grief or lament, if you are internally responding with any spirit other than Christ's own who cried, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do from the cross that they nailed him to, then the soil of your heart is either too hard, too shallow, or too overgrown by teachings other than Christ's. I bet real money that most, if not all of us, are feeling some form or degree of either self-righteous indignation or self-righteous agreement. And I know this because it's the hardened soil of our hearts, mine included, that allows this week to happen in the first place. But that is precisely the point Jesus is trying to get us to see through the parable of the sower. No matter which soil we see representing our hearts at any given moment, it can always be tilled. We are not irrevocably or irredeemably one soil or another. The dispositions of our heart vary by time, circumstance, and topic. Our hearts need continual tilling and retilling in order to open our hearts and fully imbibe the grace of Jesus' teaching. The tilling that cultivates open-heartedness is repentance. And repentance is hard work. It takes a willingness to examine where our hearts are hard, shallow, or overgrown, because they are, and then also open ourselves to the heart surgery that Jesus only ordinarily does in and through his body, the local church. You can't do this on your own. There simply is no biblical way to worship God or love your neighbor apart from what scripture refers to as repentance unto life. In explaining all of this to his disciples, Jesus is preparing their hearts for his teacher as a farmer prepares the soil for planting. He gives them notice and sets their expectations of his teaching in order to soften where there is hardness, deepen where there is shallowness, and uproot weeds wherever they are found in their hearts. And this leads us to the last character or person in this parable that we often overlook and one who both offers incredible comfort and potent fuel for the tilling that is still coming down the pike. And that is the sower, specifically the heart of the sower. Now, as far as I know, only Danny has actually ever worked on a farm before. So my hunch is that almost all of us missed what would have been glaringly obvious to the disciples living in an agrarian society. The sower in this parable doesn't seem all that bright. Seriously. In modern parlance, the sower is acting a fool. <laughs> Seed is a precious commodity. If sown well, it bears fruit 30, 60, or as Jesus points out, a hundredfold when harvested. But the vast majority of that is needed for food, leaving only a limited amount for replanting in the spring. It is way too valuable to waste spreading across soil in which you have little confidence of it taking root. And that is exactly the point. At the same time that Jesus is explaining how to receive his teaching, he is teaching us about the heart behind all of his teaching. A heart of seemingly foolish, gratuitous, indiscriminate, unending, and unflagging grace. You see, the very reason why we should even want to till the soil of our hearts is the unfathomable love of God and making room thereof. 
The discomfort of self-examination is buttressed by the insistent invitation of Jesus to find our comfort in him. And the utterly exhausting work of soil-tilling repentance is fueled by the utterly inexhaustible love of Christ. Earlier, I mentioned Peter as the personification of the shallow soil, but Jesus' posture toward him in light of that withering also gives us a beautiful picture into the heart of the sower. After his resurrection, John 21 tells us the disciples are fishing from a boat when Jesus greets them from the shore. When they realize it's him, Peter shows his characteristic zeal by literally throwing himself overboard, not even bothering to disrobe because he is too eager to even wait for them to row back. Jesus sits down with his disciples to eat breakfast and he singles out Peter with a question. Peter, do you love me? Peter knows the right answer. Yes. And Jesus responds by telling him, feed my sheep. Jesus then asks him a second time, and Peter is naturally confused, especially now that he has the hindsight to understand that Jesus isn't just the promised Messiah, he is also God incarnate. So he must, of course, know the disposition of Peter's heart, doesn't he? I wonder what that was like. What happened in Peter's heart in that moment that Jesus asked him, his question a third time when he realized that he was both fully known and fully loved that Jesus knew full well, not only Peter's genuine love for him in that moment, but also Peter's shallow love for him when he withered under persecution and that the sower loved him still. That kind of love doesn't ration itself. It doesn't hold back. It also doesn't make sense by any human standard or height of imagination. That kind of love gives itself all of itself and as often as is needed to soften, deepen, and or comfort our hearts. That is the heart of the sower. May we all know the heart of the sower as Peter did in that moment for, ba- for that is both the plow and purpose of all Jesus's teachings and God's word in general from Genesis to Revelation. Amen.